who would be the brave person to start here at the front row? Uh, when you wrote, oh, when you wrote, my brother's name is Jessica. Did you expect any sort of critical, um, critical comments on it? Did you expect it to be a bit que rather um, questioned? Look, maybe I was maybe I was a bit naive, but no, I didn't. I mean, no more than the usual sort of like whether people like it or don't like it as a novel. I didn't. Um, and the thing that I found difficult about it was that so many people commented on it without reading the book. You know, before the book came out, or they would go on Goodreads and, uh, or Twitter and condemn the book for its very existence without actually reading it first. Now, I don't have a problem <coughs> with somebody reading a book and saying, you know what, I read your book and I didn't like it. I didn't think the story was good. The dialogue was, was, was shaky. The characters made no sense. That's fine. You know, if somebody just doesn't like a book, we all have our own taste. There's books that you like that I won't like and vice versa. But I, I, I find it impossible to imagine why somebody would want to criticize something they haven't read or a song they haven't heard or a movie they haven't watched. So I found that quite difficult, to be honest. And because we do live in an age of social media, there's a kind of be a, there can be a pylon you know, of people just forming a, a received opinion. And sometimes I think maybe you know, polishing their halos a little bit and wanting to say why they are, why you're terrible and they are morally superior to you in some way. So I found that, uh, you know, I've been writing, publishing novels for 20 years, and I've published, between the adults and the kids' books, um, 17. And it was the most disappointing and dispiriting experience I've ever gone through, simply because th they didn't read it before criticizing it. Like I said, I think we all have the right to write any story that we want to write. And even whether I got it right or wrong, the notion of the book was, a it's a story of compassion, as I say. It's not a story about, like, you know, his brother announces that he's transgender and, you know, like, is cast out forever and nobody ever talks to her again. You know, it, it's a story where the family comes together and learns to love and learns to understand that actually Jessica is the exact same person Jason always was. So I've never fully understood it, the, the, the criticisms. And, yeah, so, but hey, that's life. Yes, over here at the, the, the far corner. Is there a genre you'd never write in? There's genres that I feel I would be unlikely to write in, um, uh, like science fiction. I've never been a big science fiction person. I'm not really a horror person. Um, I'm not really even a big crime person. But that said, if I came up with like a really great idea for a horror story set in you know, the planet Zog in the year 3050, I would write it. You know, I, I would never say I wouldn't do something. Um, I just think it's less likely that I would. Yeah. <clears throat> Thank you. Um, when you read the boy in the when you wrote sorry the boy in the striped pajamas, um, did you like have to look up all the inf information about the concentration camps and make all your facts right, or did you just base it off your knowledge like from the previous books you read about it? It was a little bit of both. Um, oh, there's a bird. Uh, <laughs> Um, it was a little bit of both. Um, a, I, I wrote the, um, <laughs> the, the distracting there. The, um, when I wrote that first draft, it was all built around the knowledge that I had built up from all those years of reading. When I wrote the second, third, fourth, fifth, however many it was, drafts, um, then I would go back to books to kind of figure out uh, just the things I didn't know. You know, when you get to the end of the first draft, that's when you know all the things that you don't know. 
So I went back to specific things. But I also had to make decisions about changing things in the campus. For example, has anybody actually been to Auschwitz, for example? Yeah, a few people. OK, well, if you've been to Auschwitz, and I'm sure many of you, when you're older and you know, traveling around Europe, you'll visit. Um, <clears throat> in, um, in real life, the commandant's house, for example, uh, was inside the camp itself and very close to one of the, um, the, one of the, the gas chambers. In the book, I moved that house outside so I can put a fence between them. So Bruno has to walk there every day, and it's quite a distance. So these are the kind of decisions. Obviously, that's not factually accurate or historically accurate. But it's one of the decisions you make as a writer. You say, well, what's more important here, getting the geography of a camp correct or the emotional truth of the story? And it's, it's, a, it's a tricky one, and it is certainly one that people can debate, and people have debated with me over the years. But I think if you know, you know, there's a, there was a great Irish writer, James Joyce, who said about grammar, that if you know the rules of grammar, you can break them. I think if you know the rules of, and the history, then you decide what's important and what isn't in terms of telling your story. So they were, this, they were tough decisions at times to make. But that novel, remember, is subtitled A Fable, which means a work of fiction with a moral at the center. So it's not pretending to be an absolutely like, real life story. It's not based on a real person. Um, it's based on a real experience. But yeah, these are the, but that's what, these are one of the interesting things about writing, you know, making those decisions. And, and then, you know, there are people who would say, you shouldn't do that, that's wrong. And I, and I understand that point of view. And I appreciate and respect that point of view. But my point of view as the writer is a different one. And, and that's okay, I think. That's what makes literature open to debate and argument in, a, in an interesting way. Yes, second row there. Uh, the second row, the, the blue hoodie. <clears throat> Did you receive any like backlash for the boy in the striped pajamas? Um, some, but bear in mind that was two thousand and six that that book came out, and things were very different. There wasn't really the big social media thing that there is now, and people who criticised boy in the striped pajamas did did so in a very polite way. Um, it wasn't the same as the experience with my brother's name is Jessica, where people could just go online and say, you know, you're an idiot. Um, people tended to criticize it more from a literary point of view and say, uh, the, the, the question we just had there a moment ago about the, the accuracy and the facts. And uh, people would write about that maybe and say, but this is a problem. And that was fine, you know, but I never had any um, major dramas about it. Um, and I met many survivors over the years, you know, when I was touring with that book and the movie, um, I met many survivors of the camps who were always very, very supportive of the book. And, who always said, you know, they, they just want stories to keep being told. I think, was it you who said you were reading Marcus's book, The Book Thief? Yeah. Um, I think Marcus has had the same experiences, you know, that just um, writing these stories, keeping these stories out there, young people reading them still, talking about them, events like this. We're sitting here right now, 75 years after the end of the Second World War, still talking about this, is, is good in itself. So um, the only bad experience I ever had with it was once I was doing an event like this, where I was up on a stage, and somebody came out of the audience and punched me in the face. But uh, yeah, <laughs> don't get any ideas. Um, um, and <laughs> it, was, it was when we were promoting the movie, and it was myself and um, the director and the lead actress. And um, yeah, the guy just seemed to, it was in New York. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, somebody just seemed to take a, offense to the way I was presenting it or something. And he just climbed out of the audience, came up on stage. Three of us sitting there, what's going on? Just came over and knocked me off my seat. You know? So there we go. Yeah. <laughs> Front row here. Um, did you ever get writer's block? 
And how did you get through it? Writer's block. Yeah, I mean, a little bit. I mean, I think it's a bit of a luxury to afford yourself. Um, there are, I think more that there are, there are days where the stories aren't coming and where the writing isn't coming. And there are days where, frankly, you just need to lie on the sofa and watch Netflix, you know, and eat chocolate and do nothing. And that's okay. I've never gone through kind of a protracted period where I can't write. Um, I, I, I find that I would be very, I don't know, I just wouldn't be myself. You know, I, like I'm only really, like my, my bag's back there and in there there's a laptop and in there there's the draft of the next book that I'm working on. Like I'm always working on the next thing. If I'm not doing that, I just don't feel very happy. You know, I feel sort of like a bit antsy. Um, so, but yeah, there will be days and times where uh, I don't. And certainly when you finish something, sometimes you need a little break just to kind of recharge your batteries, you know, to, to, to just block out one story before starting the next thing. But I've never really had too much difficulty with it, I have to say. Uh, yes, you have that from there, yeah. And then, and the, with the Travisker jumper, yeah. Are any of the characters in your books based on real people? Uh, well, in some of the books, I've actually used real-life figures. For example, in The Boy at the Top of the Mountain and in The Boy in the Striped Pajamas, Hitler shows up from time to time. Um, in my most recent adult novel, there's a, a great American writer, Gore Vidal, who shows up. Um, Charlie Chaplin is in my first book. So I often use real people. But sometimes it's not so much that I base people on people I know in my own life, say friends or family. I would be more likely to use characteristics of them. Um, like, for example, my younger sister, Sinead, um, she has this notebook where she writes down um, grievances. You know, if, if somebody, like if I have said something to annoy her, you know, she'll write, she'll call it her book of grievances, and she'll write down these notes, things to hold against me. And um, I know, I know, she's 42, and she's still doing it. Um, it's a big book. Um, but I use that in one of my books, a person who has this book of grievances against her brother that she's always filling in, you know, you, you've wronged me in some way. Um, it's only done in fun, let me tell you. Um, it's, not a, it's not a very serious thing. Um, so sometimes you'll take things like that. But in the same way that, you know, we could be, you know, it could be signing books or something afterwards. You could say something to me that could be something funny or interesting. And I'll just remember that and make a note of it. And it will show up in something later. So. Uh, over this side, I think. Yeah, saying the, say the, let's go to three in a row there. Yeah. With um, my brother's name is Jessica, do you think that the criticism mostly came from adults? Or, and if you do, like, why would you think that is? I think it um, almost exclusively came from adults. Um, and I would say, as I said, I think about nine out of ten of them haven't read the book. Uh, I think there is, like, I, I could be wrong on this. I think there is a tendency online to kind of um, make ourselves always sound morally superior to other people. It's a virtue signal. You know, to, to tell people, tell complete strangers why they're terrible and why you're not. And um, I don't know why people feel the need to do that. You know, yesterday, uh, the Nobel Prize for Literature was announced. And one of the people who won the Nobel Prize for Literature this year's uh, had had some questionable um, um, support for a, a far-right leader in Europe some years ago. And many writers were going uh, online saying why he shouldn't have been given the Nobel Prize. It's one open to debate again. In my head, I think, well, a prize is given for the person's work, right? They can be a monster outside of that, but it's for their work. And should we really rain on somebody's happy day, winning the Nobel Prize for literature, for God's sakes, and tell them, you know, all the reasons why they shouldn't have? Is it just a case of saying, well, I didn't win the Nobel Prize, and I'm morally superior to you? So I don't know what it's all about. And maybe we all do it from time to time, a little bit, you know? 
When you write, how do you keep the storyline going without focusing on something too much or trailing off? I think a lot of it is about focus, because when I'm writing those drafts, I'm very, very much involved with it, so that even when I'm not writing, when I'm you know, doing other things, doing the laundry, making dinner, whatever, um, there is a part of my brain which is still kind of working that story without actively doing so. You know, it's more sort of like it's just sort of playing in the background. And, and I, as I said in the, 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 the advice for writers, that the excitement I feel about getting back to it the next day um, keeps that story moving, I think. Oh, what's the most valuable piece of feedback you've ever had? Oh, the most valuable piece of feedback, it was probably actually with Boy in the Striped Pajamas, the editor of that book. When I gave him um, the first readable draft, there was a difference in it than there is in the published version, where the, in the original version of it, there was a kind of a narrator who, it was, the narrator was saying he had heard this story and was recounting it to the reader, but there were parts of it that he didn't know and hadn't heard. And the, the editor said to me, look, you know, that's a gimmick. We don't need that. Your story is great. Get rid of the fuss around it and just tell your story. So I got rid of all that fluff, basically, from around it and just told the story. Uh, yes, here at the front. <clears throat> when you look back on all the stories you've written, um, would you change anything in them? Would I change anything in them? No, I wouldn't. And I can look back at each book and say in my head whether I achieved artistically what I set out to achieve. And sometimes you don't. Sometimes you hit it out of the park. Sometimes you think, that one, I really got it. Sometimes you look at them and you go, you know what, I worked hard, I did everything I could, but I didn't quite achieve. And I think that's okay across a life, you know? And each book, though, represents who I was at that time and the writer I was and, you know, whatever merits I had as a writer at that time. So I don't think it's worth kind of going back and being too self-critical about that. Over the course of a lifetime, if I write, say, 30, 40 books over the life, they can't all be fantastic, you know? Um, and, you know, you, you kind of have to give yourself some slack on that and say, that's okay. Yes, then. Why do you write about the awful things that have happened in the world and are still happening? I mean, like, do you, like, when other people write about things like plants, do you respect them for that? Or do you think that they should write about something? I, I think every writer should write exactly what they want to write. I respect anybody who can get an, a story down in a page and find a reader for it. So I don't think it's the job of a writer to tell anybody what they should and shouldn't write. Um, it's true that a lot of my stories are sad stories. I don't really know why, because um, I'm quite a cheerful person in real life. Um, I don't know the answer to that. It's just, it's just where the stories come from, you know? And, and I, I guess I do try to move the reader, you know, to make them, um, uh, often to make them cry, <laughs> but sometimes to make them laugh. You know, like there's a novel of mine, The Hearts of Visible Furies, which is full of jokes. Um, there's a children's book I wrote, uh, Barnaby Brockett, which is full of jokes. So it's, it's not all misery, but I think it's, it's, um, it's up to anybody to write what they want. Yeah, yeah. The, you and the, you. Uh, the, the purple and then the red. <laughs> um, have you ever like, started novels and then decided that it wasn't something you wanted to write and then sort of just left them alone? I, I haven't really, because now what I would do is, when I start, I feel this is the story I want to tell and I will figure out the problems of it as it goes. What I do have, and most writers would have, 
is on my computer, I've got, about two, I've got two novels before my first published novel that weren't good enough, um, which I wouldn't go back to. But they weren't, I wouldn't consider them failures at all. I would consider that I, I couldn't have written the first published novel without writing those before. Because everything, like I said, every moment at your desk makes you a better writer. Every bit of that made me, made me better. Where did you get your inspiration for um, My Brother's Name is Jessica? Um, it started with a, uh, a friend of mine um, who was, um, well, had always been the son of some friends of mine and who came out as being transgender. And um, was she was telling me stories about various, uh, just the experience and how difficult it was. And that even though she felt she, had, she was doing the right thing for herself and felt happier, that there was also a lot of trauma involved, as you would imagine. It's, it's, it's difficult. And the more she told me about it, the more interested I grew in it. It wasn't a subject I knew very much about. And, and I just felt, you know, it's out there so much in the news, in the media, that there will be, there'll be kids going through this experience. Um, I felt there wasn't really a book out there about that, and I, I wanted to explore. Sometimes you write something trying to understand it better yourself. You know, sometimes the questions that Sam asks in the book are the questions that I might have asked her or asked her parents that sometimes are insensitive questions or the wrong question to ask. But then you're told why they're the wrong question to ask. And, you know, I was learning as much as anybody was. Yes, towards the back. <clears throat> do you have a favorite author, and have they inspired you? Um, I do have a favorite author. Um, if you look here on my right, my left arm, um, I, have a, I have two tattoos. Uh, one is here, um, it says Wave After Wave, which is from my favorite singer. My favorite singer is Kate Bush. And this comes from, a, 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 yeah, um, from her album, Hands of Love. And this is from my favorite writer. And the line is, we are all terminal cases, which is the last line of one of his most famous novels. The whole sentence reads, in the world according to Garp, we are all terminal cases. And the writer, the writer is John Irving. Uh, you were smiling. I thought you knew who it was, yeah? Um, John Irving, American writer. And uh, he's always kind of been my big inspiration as a writer. And when I got my first novel published, I sent it to him with a kind of fan letter and told him how much he'd inspired me. And in the 20 years since, he's become a real good friend and a mentor to me. And um, I'm very lucky to, to have him as a friend. Yes. I think we've got time for, say, say two more after this. If there's two people who haven't asked one, then we'll go with, with that. Were you happy with the way the boy in the striped pajamas was portrayed in the film? Yeah, I was. Uh, I thought it was a really good, faithful adaptation. Uh, I thought there was, um, I thought any changes, like a, a film is a kind of translation of sorts. And the, any sort of alterations seemed right for a screen. Um, I really liked it. I thought it, was, thought it was really good. Two people, yes, there we are. What's your favorite book that you've written? Um, it's the book called The Heart's Invisible Furies, which is set in Ireland between 1945 and 2015. And it's kind of sad, but it's full of jokes as well. OK, and finally, yes. Did you ever think that you'd be able to like write a poem instead of a novel? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I haven't written poems since I was about 14 and falling in love for the first time when I wrote some really, really terrible, terrible poems. And I bet a lot of you are writing some terrible, terrible poems at the moment. 
um, until very recently, where um, I'm sure you may have heard, of, I'm sure you know of Puffin, which is the children's imprint of Penguin. Well, Puffin is going to be 80 years old next year. And they're putting together um, an anthology of um, just stories and poems and all this, you know, a big book uh, to mark the 80 years. And I wrote a funny poem. In fact, oh, no, I don't have my phone. Oh, well, I, it's very short. I can read it. I'll just get my phone. And then we'll finish on this, because it's a funny poem. Excuse me. <laughs> oh. This will be a good note to leave it on. So the idea of the, poem, uh, the, idea of the book is to uh, encourage young people to uh, do things um, that people tell them they can't do. Okay, it's quite, it's, it's hopefully, hopefully it's funny. I've never read it before, so here we go. It's called The Dog Who Danced on the Moon. There once was a boy called Jeremy Lump. His mum was a nightmare, his dad was a grump. He didn't have too many friends of his own, except for his dog, who would twerk for a bone. The dog was called Maxwell and danced like a dream. He hoped to do Strictly, but couldn't get seen by producers who only liked show business folk and thought twerking dogs would be seen as a joke. At school, teachers laughed right in Jeremy's face when he said that his dream was to venture through space and meet different, different species and alien tribes. Poor Jeremy had to ignore all their jibes. When I'm a grown man in my 20s or more, said Jeremy, raising his eyes from the floor, I can be what I want, an inventor or cook. I can write a great screenplay, a song, or a book. I can climb every mountain, design better tires. I can sail across the oceans or fight forest fires. I can be what I want. I could even cure cancer. And Maxwell could yet be a strictly come dancer. The dog did a twerk, then the robot, the jive. He danced across the room, and he gave a high five to Jeremy, who was a very good master. He got so excited, he danced even faster. And later at home, though they both felt quite tired, they nevertheless felt completely inspired to follow their dreams, get a job, volunteer, as a great dancing dog and a space pioneer. Fast forward in time, let's say 10, 15 years, when Jeremy still dreams of final frontiers. And Maxwell, despite all the time that's advancing, is somehow still breathing and somehow still dancing. An ad in the paper says, astronauts wanted, some brave men and women, not easily daunted, who give up five years for a long travelogue. And yes, if you like, bring your cat or your dog. It didn't take long for the pair to apply. They got through the interviews, tests, said goodbye to their friends and their loved ones, and soon were installed on a spaceship the rocket designers had called Apollo 500. It soared through the sky at remarkable rates, flying ever so high, its occupants wondering where, what they might find when they reached unknown parts, leaving Earth far behind. The people who'd once said the boy was a fool, his parents, his teachers, the pupils at school, all had to think twice when they followed his pattern of travels from Earth to Mars, Neptune, and Saturn. And as for brave Maxwell, his brilliant CV may not have delivered a spot on TV, but the animal kingdom all fall in a swoon when they read of the first dog who danced on the moon. <laughs> it, it, it almost feels like I planted that question, but I didn't. <laughs> <laughs>